All right, let's turn over to 2 Timothy, the last chapter, the fourth chapter. 2 Timothy is one of my favorite books, partly because it was Paul's last book, and so he really um, pours everything into it. He's about to die, and he knows it. He's run out of appeals, pretty much, and so this is just a little bit before Nero had him killed. He wrote to Timothy, who was his young protege, and just gave him some last-minute thoughts concerning the church, concerning ministry, some personal thoughts. And so um, most people consider this, they call this Paul's swan song because it's of the 14 books that Paul wrote of the New Testament. This is the last one that he wrote just um, a little bit before his death, um, around 67 AD or so. So um, it's, it's a special book and now as we come to chapter four, we're coming to the final chapter of Paul's final epistle. And so we see here's what mattered to Paul at the end of the race. He said, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, not that they are two separate, you'd be wrong to even link them together, but the Lord Jesus Christ, no one could be called Lord in in the same context with God unless he was God himself. And, but I charge you before God, and including the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Right away, appealing to Timothy based on the fact that Jesus Christ is our judge. The fact that he's coming back, that he is going to be revealed, that he is going to appear. And so he's saying, Keep in mind, keep, your, keep in your head the context that what I'm telling you to do is a commandment from the one who will one day judge everyone. And he's, and he's coming back. He's going to appear. And we will all face him. And so he says, ah, this is a serious command that I'm giving you, and it's coming from him. And he says, preach the word. Declare God's word. You know, he said, therefore, in verse 1, and remember back in chapter 3, he had talked about, towards the end of the chapter, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God will be complete and mature, thoroughly equipped for to do everything that God wants him to do. And now he says, Because of that, there isn't anything more important for you to do than to declare God's word. Now, a lot of these things relate especially to pastors, and Paul was writing to a young pastor, Timothy, who was pastoring in Ephesus at this time. Uh, But if, if they apply to a pastor, they apply to all of us to different degrees because we are all called as as disciples of Jesus Christ, to declare his word, to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. That's the the mandate that is on our lives. And as he says, the most important thing is to preach the word. For each one of us, the most important thing that we can declare to someone, 
the most important thing we can share with someone, most important thing for us to communicate, period, is the word of God. The timeless, inspired, living, powerful word of God. We say a lot of things, and there's nothing wrong with sharing your story, there's nothing wrong with sharing your testimony, there's nothing wrong with you know, just chatting about whatever it is that you want to say, but when it comes down to it, the most important things for any of us to speak are that which God says. And so hopefully in our conversations with each other and in encouraging each other or as we discuss the problems that come up in our lives and praying for each other, in every way, the word of God ought to be worked into the conversation. It should become, we need to know God's word so well that it just becomes second nature to us. And we are constantly communicating it because it's the word of God that won't return void. Oh, you can hear a lot of clever things that people say that you may want to share with others and there's nothing wrong with that. But the problem is anything that a man or a woman says that isn't specifically from God's word, it's kind of up for grabs in terms of its real value and in terms of of the ultimate fruit that comes from it. But when you're sharing with someone, here's what God says, you can bank on it and you can know that you're not steering them astray. I'm, I'm nervous whenever I when, I, when I have someone come to me and ask for advice because, hey, I'm not that flawless in the way I live my own life. You know, how am I going to tell someone else how to live their life? And yet I'm always very comfortable when someone comes with a question or someone comes with a difficulty or um, they come for counseling. If I can say, you know what, I don't know what you should do, but let me share with you a couple things that God says. Here's what I know his word declares. And in doing that, we're on really solid ground. You still have to be careful because a lot of times the word can be misapplied and you can quote something out of context that's sort of misleading. And we see that a lot. Um, But if you're saying what God says, at least if you go back and get it in context and understand it, it's going to be something that's beneficial. And so Paul's just reminding Timothy of this. And of course, it's a good, it's a good reminder for all of us because we decide what we listen to. We choose to subject ourselves to various ministries, to various teachings. We, we read books. We listen to podcasts maybe and we have the radio on and hear different people and and all that that we take in is kind of a compilation of everything that we decide to subject ourselves to and yet we need to be selective in what we listen to there are some people frankly that I just love listening to because I know I'm going to hear God's word there are some other people who are good people, and I may enjoy them. They may be very entertaining. But frankly, I'm not hearing as much of the Word of God as I would prefer. 
And so when I'm, I try to be selective, and therefore I just, as much as possible, I want to hear from people who preach the word. Um, Greg Laurie periodically has a conference at his church, and one time he did it in Anaheim at a hotel, but he calls it the Preach the Word Conference. And it isn't just, you know, all the Calvary guys that you always hear, but he, he books pastors who are known for teaching the Word of God. Some of them that we might disagree with theologically in certain areas, and yet what I always love those conferences because it reminds me that though we can have a lot of differences, when you stick with the Word of God, there is so much that we have in common. And so that's an important distinction, really. It's something that we should appreciate. I, when I think of preaching the Word, um, I, my first thought probably goes to J. Vernon McGee, who he's been dead for more than 20 years, I think, and he's still preaching the word all over the place. We're in Hawaii listening to some podunk radio station, and there's the Bible bus. There's Dr. McGee, and he's just going through the Bible. And, of course, Pastor Chuck kind of patterned his ministry after that same approach. And, you know, it never gets old. It's never dated because it's just God's word. And though, you know, there are places where I might disagree with Dr. McGee's interpretation, other times that strike you as kind of charming in light of the culture that he was coming from, yet it's the word of God. And I'm amazed how much God still has to say through someone after he's been dead for a long time. And I just think what an example that is. And the more that someone is coming from the word of God, the more reliable I think that they're going to be. And, and to me, when you're preaching the word, that means preaching through the word, not just always harping on the same few passages, but really trying to cover the word of God as much as you can. It takes years. You know, when I, when I came to this church, we started off in Genesis, and now we're picking up a few straggling books, and in another year or two, I don't know, we'll end up having taught all the way through the Bible. And that, to me, is going to be the greatest accomplishment if the Lord tarries. Once I know that, you know what? I have taught the whole counsel of God. Every, whether I did a good job of it or a bad job of it, I look forward to the day when someone can go on our website and pick any book of the Bible, any chapter of the Bible, and they can see where we've gone through it and discussed it. And so, you know, that's just important. And the reason it's important is because of the power of the Word of God, and that's why Paul emphasized preach the Word. And then he says, be ready. The old King James used to say, be instant. In season and out of season. That word there for be ready is literally, it means it's, it's two words put together. The word epi, which means upon, and the word histemi, which means to stand or to stay or to be solid. It's a very, very common word. Histemi is in the, in the New Testament. So he's really kind of saying stand upon. The idea is, ephistemi, by the way, is the Greek word. 
the idea is that you, and be ready isn't bad, but it really means show up, be counted on, be there, stand on God's word. And consistency is such an important trait. And so in telling someone to preach the word and then saying, stand upon it, be there, be ready, be available, be dependable, be consistent. I mean, that's not always exciting, but it's so important. And it's 90% of the game, some have said, is showing up. And how and I, and I think at this stage of my life, at this stage of the ministry, and I think back to all the years that I that I sat under Pastor Chuck Smith's teaching ever since in the early '70s, and one of the biggest influences he had on my life, other than the fact that he taught the Bible, and he just kept going through the Bible, on and on and on, was that he always showed up. He was just there. He was available. He wasn't always off doing a bunch of other things. And there, frankly, there are teachers who are much more exciting than Pastor Chuck or than J. Vernon McGee. There are those who are more hip and current. A lot of times Chuck will try to say something that's really hip, but it just doesn't quite come off. You know, he's 82 years old. And he's never really been hip. When he was ministering to all the hippies, you hear him and you know, his hair was kind of long in back and in a flip, but you know, you just, you can only make yourself so cool when you're that age. But he was always there. You knew he was going to be there. You knew he would stay consistent. And here at the age of 82, last Sunday, I mean, you know, he just had a couple strokes. Last Sunday, he taught the first two services. He didn't teach the third service because the bus was leaving for Israel. And so right now he's in Israel <laughs> against doctor's wishes and everything else. But the guy just doesn't know how to do anything except show up. And so he's one of the best examples I can think of of being ready. It's just there. When I have an opportunity to share the word of God, I'm there, I'm available, I'm ready. There are some people that you could, if you tell them that they need to share something or speak, I mean, they're, they're just panicked about it, and they have takes them months to get ready and to get it all done. But, you know, what the, the kind of people that I admire, the people who live so much in the Word of God, that you could wake them up in the middle of the night and flop the Bible open, and they could teach a message. Charles Spurgeon was like that, even when he was 17 years old. He, there was a time when Spurgeon, I think when he was about 18 or 19, he was on a wagon, a horse-drawn wagon, being pulled to a church where he was supposed to preach. And, you know, the wagon broke down or there was a flood out on the road, and so it took him a while before he could get there. So the pastor of the church had already started the message. And so when Spurgeon got there, the message was about half over. And, but they saw him come in, and they're like, whoa, you know, Charles Spurgeon's here. They introduced him and brought him up, and he said, what passage were you teaching on and what verse were you on? 
And they said, well, I was in this passage and I just got to this first. And Spurgeon finished the guy's sermon. Now that sounds like, wow, how could you do that? Now, there are some guys who I know could do that, but they would just have absolutely nothing to say. It would be mindless. But when you, when you study the word enough, that's what gets you ready. That's what prepares you. When you're living in the word of God, it's just at the tip of your tongue. Teaching the word of God is really hard work. And I don't want to give you the impression that it ever gets to the point where, oh yeah, I just throw it together and it's fine. You can tell when pastors do that, I think. But at the same time, to be ready for whatever God has for you is something that we should all aspire to. That if somebody has a question or they have a need or we're looking at the scriptures, we've been there before. It's familiar territory and, and, and we are ready. But he says, be ready in season and out of season. The, that's an interesting two, it's just two words in the Greek. And it's the word eukairos. Kairos means time. And eu, E-U, just like a eulogy is a good word, you means good. So eukairos means good time. But then the second word is a kairos. And you know from just the amount of Greek I've taught you, a means not or no, and kairos again means time. So literally, instead of saying be ready in season and out of season, a literal translation is be ready in good times and no times. Now, what does that mean and how did they come up with in season and out of season? Well, sometimes things go really well and we're ready for that and we're ready in those and for those good times. But other times, there just doesn't seem to be time. It's not that it's bad time, it's just that we don't have enough time. And I know in our society, most of us can relate to this. It's like, we're so swamped. There's so many demands on us. There aren't enough hours in the day. It's so hard to keep up. And yet, we are ready to do what God has called us to do, whether it's a good time or whether there's no time. <laughs> or you could say it's a bad time, but really, literally, it means no time. And I know, you know so many people who, in our church who serve in different areas and they're just absolutely dependable i know that they will always be there and at the same time i know how much demand they have on their time i know how much they're pulled in all directions i think of candace i think of david j these are two people who maybe a lot of you don't even know them but so much at our church would not happen if they just decided to not show up one day. And yet, they both have incredibly busy lives and a lot of demands on them, but they have such a commitment to the Lord and to seeing that his word is communicated that they are always here, that they're always ready, that they do whatever is necessary. And we have a lot of people like that in our church, and I'm thankful so much for that. But that's what Paul's telling Timothy to be. Be that person who's always ready, who's always there, and it doesn't matter what time it is, you're not watching your clock, you're not, when is this going to be over, I got to get out of here. 
You're just going, hey, if it's a good time or if it's not, I'm showing up because the word is that important. And so he says, do that. And then he tells him, boy, I don't know how we're going to get through this chapter. Sorry, (laughs) these preachers. (laughs) Convince. A part of it is to be convincing, to be able to persuade people of the truth of what God says. Um, But he also says rebuke. And the word there for rebuke is, um, it can mean to kind of put somebody in their place. But interestingly, it's, it's two words put together. It's epi, which means upon, as you probably know. And it's the word teme, which means to value or to honor. And, and so it's a rebuke. Okay, that's an all right translation. But understand where it comes from. It's to put value upon someone. And so the spirit of the rebuke is to challenge people to live up to what they're worth. It's like where Paul says, walk worthy of the vocation to which you have been called. And when we are giving people correction, and when we are trying to affect the direction that they take or what they do, it's so important that we do it from a standpoint of, hey, I know you can do better than this. You are better than this. You're worth more than this. Your life is more valuable than to throw it away in the way that you are or to allow yourself to be pulled down, dragged down in a way that denigrates you. I was talking to someone, texting back and forth with her today who's going through some real emotional situations over a failed relationship and and. I was sharing with her, you know, she said, this person has just thrown me in the trash heap. And I said, nobody can throw you in the trash heap except you. See, no one has a right to define you or to value you except the one who made you. So if you want to listen to someone telling you you aren't worth anything, you're actually putting yourself in the trash. They aren't putting you in the trash but to challenge each other and to remind each other that, hey, you're worth more than that. Is that, and, and I've had people sometimes when I'll say something sort of flippant or, you know, when you talk as much as I do and you're uh, the, way, the type of person I am, sometimes you're going to say things you wish you didn't. And every once in a while, someone very lovingly will write to me and just say, you know, I heard you make this comment and, and they'll say, you're better than that. That's really, I don't think that's you. And how touching that is. When instead of somebody saying, I heard what you said and it makes you a jerk. Somebody is essentially saying, I know you. And I'm sure you didn't mean to say that the way it came out. Because you're better than that. Now, it's nice when you give someone enough of the benefit of the doubt that you don't even have to point it out, that you go, I know he said that, I know how it sounded, but I've heard enough other things that he says, I, I don't, you know, I'm not going to hold this against him. But sometimes we are to rebuke each other, where there's something that God speaks to you and says, you need to address this person. And a nice way of putting that is epitime, 
to, to put upon them value, to rebuke somebody from the standpoint of, of their eternal worth. Then the word exhort is that word that, that uh, we're familiar with also that's parakaleo, parakalos in this case, to be called alongside. It's I'm with you, I'm beside you, I'm putting my arm around you, we're in this together. That kind of a challenge, again, it's, it's encouraging more than what we think of exhortation. And to do this kind of ministry with all long-suffering, macrothumia is the Greek word, it means to breathe hard for a long time. Like before you nail somebody, keep breathing, keep breathing, calm yourself down, do this with long-suffering and teaching with the idea of communicating something helpful and beneficial. Do it as a good teacher would. So all of this is what we are to be ready to do with the word of God, applying the word of God into people's lives. He says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires or their own lusts, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables or the greek word is mythos myths he said the day is going to come when people don't want to hear you tell them the truth and their itching ears and the lusts of their flesh will mean that they will just want to hear people tell them what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear And this is a temptation for all of us. We're all drawn to people who say what we already think. It's why people will sit there and listen for hours to political commentators who are already saying what you already believe. And and yet that's the audience. And I mean, I, I can listen to some of these commentators and go, boy, that is right on. But they say the same thing every day. There's nothing really new. But in my flesh, I enjoy hearing someone who says what I feel and who says it in just a, a very entertaining way. And so, and usually they'll say things that I might be, you know, as a pastor, I might get in trouble for saying it, but they can just come right out and blurt it out. And people will go, wow, that's just Rush or that's just who, you know, Fox, that's just whoever. Um, on the, uh, by the same token, it's interesting that people who have a different persuasion, they have their own people that they love to listen to from, a, from their perspective. And people do this with pastors. People will just heap up for themselves teachers who make them feel good about what they already believe. And so Paul's warning Timothy, be careful, because the very popular teachers will someday be the ones who will never tell people something that they don't want to hear. It'll, they'll always be about making people feel good. And if they have to do that with telling myths, then that's what they'll do. I mean, I've talked before about how many urban myths come into my email box every day. The people don't have anything better with their time than to continue to forward emails of stories that are 
demonstrably not true. That if just before you hit forward, if you just went to Snopes.com, you'd find out that most of this stuff is just a bunch of baloney. But people are consumed in their lives with passing on a good story, whether it's true or not. So I still hear from people almost every week who want me to sign a petition to stop, you know, Madeline Murray O'Hare from stopping Christian radio or something. It's like, that was never true even when she was alive 25 years ago. Certainly not true now. It's a myth. But because we are so insecure in our beliefs, because we are so desiring to be made to feel reinforced in what we already think, and at the same time we're so afraid to be challenged in what we believe, then we have a tendency to just listen to people who say everything we already agree with. I, if I listen to a teacher and I always agree with them, there really was no point in me listening to them. I like to listen to someone who can make me sometimes uncomfortable because sometimes God wants me to be uncomfortable. So I listen to a wide variety of, of communicators often. And I'll listen to news shows on networks that I don't give much credence to sometimes. And I'll even read books and articles that are written by people that I think are out in left field. Because I don't ever want to get to the point where all I do is let my itching ear be scratched and be a fan of people who are just like me. Because I don't want to stay just like me. I want God to help me to grow. I want to learn different perspectives that God might be placing upon me. And so it's important to do this. And for those who are communicating, it's important to tell people the truth whether they like it or not. Not in an annoying and obnoxious way. Not constantly just alienating everyone because you're beating them over the head with your little pet peeve. But at the same time, in love, communicating what's true, even when people don't want to hear it, is something that we are commanded to do. And that's what Paul is commanding Timothy to do here and just warning him a bunch of people aren't going to like this. And a whole lot of ministries will be much bigger than yours because people really just want to be scratched where they itch. And the majority of communication is going to be mythology because people like hearing it. People want it. You know, um, there, there are some other religions that I... Listen to what they have to say, and I think, how in the world could anyone believe that crazy stuff that they teach? But, you know, I think, and, and, and no one ever went and joined a cult because the doctrine was so attractive. It was the fact that they were really welcomed, they feel like they belong. Maybe there are cute girls in that church or good-looking guys or, wow, they seem like really morally strong people or um, I like their building, the angel up on the top of the spire is cool or whatever. There's, there's something about it that appeals to people, a lot of people, a huge amount of people. And a lot of times we have the idea that, oh, you know, 
Two million people couldn't be wrong. Oh, yes, they could. The majority is almost always wrong. And all you have to do is see who wins elections, and you'll find that out. But, but that's why Paul is telling Timothy, don't judge your faithfulness based on the size of your audience. And don't cater to the audience. You tell them the truth. Tell them what I tell you to tell them in the way that I tell you to do it. And you will rise above those who will fill their life with compromise and get very popular as a result. So an important reminder. He says, but you be watchful in all things. That word um, to be watchful means to be alert or awake. Um, It literally is a word that means don't drink. But the idea is pay attention, keep in your best faculties. Sometimes this word is used to mean use self-control, but be alert in all things. Endure afflictions, expect hard times. Do the work of an evangelist. Now, we don't know that Timothy was specifically an evangelist. An awful lot of what we see would indicate maybe he wasn't necessarily, and yet he's told to do the work of an evangelist. And that's something that I think we are all called to do. As much as is possible within us, as God gives us opportunity to share the gospel with people, to carry that good news, as as the Great Commission calls us to go into all the world and, and declare the gospel to every creature. And so he's saying, do the work of an evangelist. Now, some people are evangelists. That is their main calling. I mean, there are obvious ones that we know of, like a Billy Graham, who is just, when, when he was still able to get up there and preach, the guy could preach anything. He could read the phone book, and people would come forward when they played Just As I Am. Greg Laurie's like this. So you could say the stuff and you go, yeah, I've heard this a thousand times before. And he gives the invitation and all these people come forward. Raul Reese, I've seen him before he gave his message, just go, I think some of you here are supposed to accept Jesus tonight. Get up and come forward. And they just come streaming forward. Um, some people just have that gift. And they aren't all preachers. There are people like Myrene here who just shares the gospel in a way that People accept it, and God has put her in a place where she works with elderly people, and she just, if I had an older person who didn't know Jesus, I'd just want him to talk to her, because she has a way where the Spirit uses her, and God used her in her job working with old people to bring, there will be hundreds of people who are in heaven, because she sees her job as not working with senior citizens, It is getting paid in order to tell people about Jesus. And, you know, it's funny. When somebody's on their deathbed, nobody even gets offended when you pray with them, when you lead them to Christ. They're ready. But every one of us, whether we have that gift or not, I believe that we're called to do the work of an evangelist. And for some of of us, it's a harder work than it is for others. But we need to be willing and ready to share the good news of Jesus Christ. 
And then finally, and this is so important, fulfill your ministry. Fulfill it. <laughs> Boy, that, that means to fill it up or to take it as far as you can or to do as much as you possibly can. God is working in your life and he's given every one of us a ministry. And we are where we are as a product of where we've been. But the idea here is, when it comes to your ministry, whatever it is that God has called you to do, take it to the limit. Do as much as you possibly can in serving God. Develop yourself as much as you possibly can. Learn as much as you possibly can. Take every opportunity as much as you can to fulfill, to complete, to mature your ministry. And that should be, and it's up to God to open the doors and open the opportunities. But it's up to us to say, okay, here are opportunities that I do have, and I want to use these opportunities as much as I possibly can in order that I can say, I have taken ministry just as far as I possibly could. And there's, a, there's an ideal minister that God has within each of us. And he wants to move us in that direction. And so this is something that I would encourage you to really meditate on. Every once in a while, just get off by yourself and think about what it means to fulfill your ministry and ask yourself, am I doing everything that God has called me to do? Am I equipping myself? Maybe it means taking a class or reading a book or going back to school or volunteering to get involved in some ministries or something, but am I getting all the mileage out of the gifts that God has given me that I possibly can? And I believe that every one of us, whether we're called to be a pastor, whether we're called to be a mom, whether we're called to be a friend, whether we're called to be a business person, um, whatever it is that God's calling is on us, we need to every once in a while look in the mirror and go to the Lord and say, Am I fulfilling my ministry? Am I doing everything that I can do to be used by God with every gift that he has given me? Am I getting the mileage out of what he has given me? And that will, you can spend some time meditating on that as well you should. And so he says, personally, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. He knew, I'm, I'm, I'm just about done. The time of my departure is at hand. I'm about to die. I like the way he described it as him being poured out as a drink offering to the Lord. Whatever's left, I'm just spilling it because it's all given to him. And then he says, I have fought the good fight. The word for fight, for fought the fight is agonizomai. It's a, it's a word that they used for an Olympic competitor in wrestling. I have fought. I have battled. Boy, if you've never, I'm not talking about fake wrestling, but I think one of the things that I love about real wrestling and that I also love about mixed martial arts, ultimate fighting, um, which is, is really just a developed form of wrestling. And it's something that was in the Olympics from the Greek days. Um, 
I don't know of anything that, sh- that takes more effort where every ounce of energy that you possibly have, and they say in wrestling, leave it all on the mat. And if you've never done a wrestling workout or you've never watched wrestlers when they, when they train, it's unbelievable because they squeeze every ounce of everything that they could possibly have. And it's just positively inspiring to watch it. And that's why Paul uses it as an example often of ministry. Calvary Chapel High School has some great wrestlers. In a couple weeks, I'm going to go up to Bakersfield to see them compete in the state championships. But there's one kid at that school. He's a junior, and he's probably the best wrestler in the country right now. He's better than most college wrestlers. And, you know, he's a 16, 17-year-old kid. Um, And he, in the state championship, there's no question, he'll, he'll take first place in the state. He won the state last year. Kid's 185 pounds. God has used him. He's been on missions trips to help when the when when disasters hit over in over in um, you know um, Samoa. He was over there lifting big boulders for people and everything. Even though he was coming off an, a wrestling injury, the kid when he won state last year, his dad said. His name is Morgan McIntosh. His dad said, "Morgan, I'm proud of you. You won state." I'll give you anything that you want. Figuring he'd ask for a car. Morgan said, drop me off in the Sierras with a knife and a flint for a week. (laughs) 16-year-old kid. Dad dropped him off in the mountains with a knife and a flint. (laughs) That's a stud. I mean, that's somebody who really, you can see why he's so effective because he has that focus He's also a great student, and, and literally every college in the country wants him. And he gives all the glory to the Lord. He loves God, and he's devoted, and he challenges other guys on the team to work like that as well. But he's just an animal. And when you see that kind of thing, you realize this is what inspired Paul when he watched these guys fight and give it their all. And some of them in those days, you fought to the death. <laughs> This kid, by the way, back when he was a freshman, they had a, they had a wrestling retreat up at the conference center in the mountains, and they took him for a hike, and the coaches, it was a bad idea, but the coaches had one of their friends dressed up with a mask and an axe hide in the woods, and then they told the kids, hey, there's an axe murderer on the loose, so we need to stay together and be careful. And this guy, who was a big college wrestler, jumps out with an axe, kids go running and screaming, except for Morgan McIntosh, a freshman who went and attacked the kid, the guy, took him down and just beat him until they could pull him off. <laughs> went after the axe murderer, <laughs> okay? Now, that's what Paul's talking about. It's that kind of drive, it's that kind of desire, that kind of dedication, that kind of agonizomai. And he says, how about you live your life for Christ that way? How about you be as dedicated to serving him as these guys are to just go and win in the Olympics? So again, we're talking about Olympics. We're not talking about Winter Olympics, the little dancing and... and, shoving that thing on the ice and 
running with the broom. I mean, this is real. These are real sports. <laughs> I have fought the good fight. And then he says, I have finished the race. Now turning to those runners who would run that marathon and finish. He goes, man, I did it. And then he says, I've kept the faith. And it was an expression that meant to compete and not be disqualified, to follow the rules, to keep the faith, to do it the way you're supposed to, right up until the end. And so he said, finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. The word there for crown isn't the, the word for crown uh, diademos, which is a king's crown. <coughs> this is the word stephanos in the Greek, which was a wreath that was like the gold medal that they would get in the Olympics. It's the trophy. It's the prize. They would place that wreath on them. He said, I'm going to get that award, the crown of righteousness. The Bible talks about a lot of different awards, and it seems to have motivated Paul, and should us as well, because when we hang in there, and when we fight the good fight, and we finish the race, and and we hang in there and follow the rules and aren't disqualified, we keep the faith. God has a reward for us. He has many rewards for us, but in this case, at the at the Bema scene, judgment of Christ that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, he will lay the award on us, the crown of righteousness, the, the, the award that says you did well, you did the right thing. And if you serve God and you don't get a lot of credit here, thank God, because the things that we don't get rewarded for here, we will be rewarded for in heaven. And he says, it's not just for me, but the, right, the Lord, the righteous judge, will give it to me on that day, and not to me only, but to also to all who have loved his appearing, those who have looked forward to his return, those who have lived their lives the way he called us to live. And now he just gets personal as he ends his greetings, really. He says, be diligent to come to me quickly. Timothy, please, man, I, I want you to be here. I, how touching it is, though, that Paul, though Timothy was like his son in the faith, he was going, hey, buddy, I need you. I know what you're doing is important as you're pastoring there, but right now I just need you. For Demas has forsaken me. The word means deserted me. Having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. Demas, who... In the book of Colossians and in the book of Ephesians was described as a, a, a fellow minister of Jesus Christ, as somebody who was a fellow worker with Paul. For some reason now he left the ministry and went you know, to um, Thessalonica not to serve God, but he was just, it was like, you know, I'm just going back to work. Like the disciples after Jesus died saying, I'm going back to fishing. Jesus said, if you put your shoulder to the plow, don't ever turn away from it or you're not worthy of of serving me. When you serve God, it's easy to quit. But God doesn't want people who are quitters. 
He wants people who will hang in there all the way. And, and if, they're, if they're setting down one ministry, it should only be because they're called to another ministry. Hey, ministry is tough. And I get it when people just go, I've had enough. I need to just go work a job. But Paul was so hurt that this guy who he counted on now deserted him, left him, because frankly, he wanted to pay the bills. He wanted nicer things. He wanted a better house than he could have being in the ministry. He wanted a little more leisure. He wanted to be able to afford some of those things that he hadn't been able to afford. And It's really sad when, and I, I know people who God has specifically called them to ministry, but they can't do it because of things. They can't do it because they don't think they can afford to or they aren't willing to make the sacrifices that it takes to do it. That's such a stupid trade-off. That's such a sad compromise to do that. And that's the compromise Demas made. So he left. Crescens left for Galatia, but probably was sent there for ministry. Titus went to Dalmatia. Again, same thing. They didn't desert him. They were called off to other ministries. And then he says, only Luke is with me. And in the original language here, there's a desperation to what he's saying. Now, Luke was, a, was an historian who wrote the book of Acts and the book of Luke. He was also a doctor. And, and, and Paul is going, only Luke is left with me. If you've ever hung out with a writer or a doctor, you maybe kind of get this. Paul's just like, all I have left is this guy. He's either writing all the time or talking about things I don't understand medically. Perhaps Luke was still there because Paul was in bad shape and he was ministering to him. It's possible because Luke was an amazing writer. Luke may have been the amanuensis for Second Timothy. And so Luke himself, some people have speculated, he's the only one that was left and he's writing this himself and put the desperation in there. I'm the only guy left with him. I'm the last man standing, but only Luke is with me. Now he says, get Mark, John Mark, and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. What a beautiful thing. John Mark had gone on Paul's original missionary journey as he went with Barnabas. He was the nephew of Barnabas, and he had flaked. He had bailed. He didn't cut it, and so the second missionary journey, Paul wouldn't take him with him, so Barnabas left and took Mark with him, and, and Paul took Silas with him instead. But now here's, you know, sometimes you mess up when you're young, and you just think it's going to follow you for the rest of your life. But I love this, that in the end, Paul said, it'd be great if you could bring Mark here. Man, that guy's useful. I'm really proud of who he has turned into and how he has grown. That's really cool that we get that little insight. And Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. He was gone too. Now, Tychicus was probably, he's the guy who delivered the letter to Colossians and the one to the Ephesians. And so Tychicus may be delivering 2 Timothy to Ephesus to give it to Timothy. And many people speculate that Paul sent Tychicus because 
then he would become the pastor of the church in Ephesus so that Timothy could come to Rome and be with Paul in his final days. We don't know if Timothy ever made it to Rome, but that was probably Paul's plan. So he said, I'm sending him. Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come. Probably a winter coat, an overcoat. He was cold there in prison. Um, sometimes when you come here at night, you know how he feels. <laughs> Not really. And the books, especially the parchments. Even as an old man who was about to die, he wanted his Bible, his scrolls. He wanted the writings, what commentaries he had. He wanted to read and to study still. I love that. And he goes, Alexander the coppersmith, and it's not the word for coppersmith there isn't necessarily a coppersmith, but it's just a guy who works in metal. He did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. And you also must beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. Demas had bailed on Paul and hurt him. But Alexander the coppersmith, who had once been serving God with him, had deliberately hurt him. We don't know how he hurt him, but when you minister with someone and you trust them and they turn on you, nothing really hurts more than that. And especially when they not only leave, but they try to do damage to you. They try to hurt you on the way out, or they say things about the ministry in order to try to wound you later. Well, this is what he was like. And Paul said, he hurt me, and he throws that in. May the Lord repay him according to his works. Now, may the Lord repay him is in most of the manuscripts, but in the oldest manuscripts, it's worded, the Lord will repay him, makes it a little less imprecatory, a little less trying to put a curse on him. But um, either way, um, Paul was leaving it to the Lord to judge him. But again, he's going, Timothy, be careful of this guy. I've seen over and over again, if, if somebody will hurt one ministry, they'll hurt another one. A lot of times somebody will come to you and they have really bad things to say about their last church. But, oh, they love us and they love this church. Just give it time. People who badmouth ministries will end up badmouthing every ministry that they have anything to do with. Now, hopefully, there are some people who can grow out of that. But Paul's just warning Timothy, hey, the guy hurt me. The guy really nailed me bad, and, and I hurt because of it. And be careful, because he'll probably do the same to you. He says, at my first defense, when he first went to stand trial, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. I love that. People didn't step up as they should have. He should have had more support from the church than he did, but there he was all alone, and he said, I just pray for mercy and grace on them. You've probably been through things in your life where you felt really alone and there were people who probably should have been there for you but they weren't for whatever reason. This is a great attitude to have. Would have been nice if somebody had checked up on me. Would have been nice if somebody had been there for me. Um, but I just pray that God won't charge them with it. I know that wasn't intentional. It was, it was just a sin of omission. But the Lord stood with me. And when people don't, God will. And he strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me. 
and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Some people believe that this he was referring to Nero the first time he went in before Nero or perhaps to one of his earlier trials. Others believe that, and Paul made allusions in a couple places um, to, to facing lions. And in those days, it wasn't that unusual for Christians to be thrown to the lions, and perhaps Paul was and, and, and survived that. Um, we don't know, but he was delivered. And he said, the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. He said, God's going to keep me here as long as he wants me here. I know it's not much longer, but God can deliver me from anything, and I'm only going to be here as long as he wants me here. And, and he bursts into this benediction, to him be glory forever and ever, amen. And then he throws the P.S. on, uh, greet Prissa or Priscilla and Aquila, these two people that he worked with in the tent business and, and was involved with them at Rome, at Corinth, and different places. Tell them hi, the household of Onesiphorus, who he loved, their little house church, their home fellowship there that met in Onesiphorus's house. Erastus stayed in Corinth, filling them in on that. Erastus, um, the book of Romans says that he was the head of public works in Rome, so he was a civil servant there in Rome, but right now he was in Corinth. Trophimus, I left in Miletus because he was sick. And now again, personally, do your utmost to come before winter. I need that coat, and I, I need to see you. Eubulus greets you. We don't know anything really about him, as well as Pudens, who we don't know much about either. Linus says hi. Not the one from Charlie Brown. Um, according to uh, Irenaeus, one of the church fathers who was around in the second century, was around around the year 200, Irenaeus said that Linus was the bishop in the church, the elder in the church at Rome after Paul and Peter both died. So technically the Catholic Church teaches that Peter was the first bishop of Rome, but it could be that it was a guy named Linus was the first bishop of Rome. Claudia, don't know, all the brethren, and then finally the Lord Jesus Christ, be with your spirit, grace be with you. Mm, amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this touching, personal, profound word from Paul who was close to his deathbed being poured out. And yet, he's not afraid to show his humanity and his pain, even, Lord, as you did on the cross when you said that you thirst. Paul, too, was okay with being weak. But what strength we see in his resolve and how he valued the gospel. Lord, help us, each of us, to fulfill our ministry, to fight the good fight, to finish the race, and to keep the faith every day that you have us here on this earth. 
from now until you take us to heaven. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.